You may claim you love somebody. Uh, you may identify a cluster of feelings. But if we observe your daily comings and goings, actually how you, how you craft your life, it may not be so self-evident, this love that you claim to have. And then you realize oftentimes you say, I love you as a surrogate for doing the loving. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. Greetings from the island of Bali here in Indonesia. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying fed. I hope you're staying warm and safe through, Jesus, a pretty crazy time for our species. I mean, even that sounds glib. Crazy how the world can change in such a short period of time. I mean, a month ago, the world felt like a very different place, and here we are. But I've been really appreciating getting little notes from a lot of you guys spread out all over the world. It's really, really nice, you know, as someone who's creating content, who's putting out a podcast, who's on YouTube, you know, it's really nice to actually put a name and sometimes a face to your listeners. Because even though you see the download numbers and you see the view counts and you see all this stuff, somehow it's kind of unreal. You don't really know who you're talking to. And when I actually get notes from you guys, it, it totally makes my day. So if you have a story to tell, or you just want to say hello. I just wanted to mention that my email inbox is always open to you. You can reach me at Zachary at ZFStockhill.com. I have quite a show for you today. I don't even really know where to begin in terms of introducing it. My guest is Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a culture activist, a teacher, and an author. And frankly, he's also one of the most articulate and thoughtful public intellectuals on the planet, in my view. I first encountered Stephen, I believe about 10 years ago when I watched a documentary called Grief Walker. And the documentary and the subject of the documentary is a man who pays a lot of attention and who specializes in a topic that doesn't get a whole lot of play in, if we can call it, the Western world. The topic is death and dying. And frankly, I mean, you'll hear it in this podcast, but I am increasingly interested in death and dying and how to die well, or how to die wise, as Stephen puts it in one of his books. And I've been constantly impressed with Stephen's work and listened to a bunch of his interviews and his speaking on YouTube. And he is, to me, the one person on this planet with the most wisdom to offer on this topic. He's worked extensively with dying people and their families. He's a former program director in a major Canadian hospital. He's also a former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school. He teaches internationally, and he's the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School. He's also the author of Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, and a book that I would strongly encourage you to read in addition to Come of Age, a book called Die Wise, 
a manifesto for sanity and soul. So suffice it to say, this is a pretty interesting human being. And in today's conversation, Stephen and I spoke about the implications of the coronavirus pandemic, his work in what he calls the death trade, how he considers his own mortality, how we might begin to recover our common humanity, the distinction or not between being human and humane, and a whole lot more. At the end of this podcast, I'm going to play a track off of the collaborative album that Stephen made with Gregory Hoskins. It's called Nights of Grief and Mystery. It's a collection of some studio work and their live performances. It really captures what I imagine their live show to be like. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to see them yet, but the album is tremendous. It's called Nights of Grief and Mystery. And at the very end of this podcast, following my conversation with Stephen, you'll hear the track, Take a Little Walk, All the Songs of Love, off of that album. This is one of the most timely, humbling, and thought-provoking conversations I've yet had for this podcast. And I can tell you that this is a a conversation that I'm going to listen to again and again for my own benefit, for selfish reasons, several more times. Before we get started, I'll just remind you that ratings and reviews are really important for any podcast success. So if you dig the show, please take 30 seconds out of your day, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Also, be sure to check out Stephen's website which is orphanwisdom.com. Without any further ado, I present to you, Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Well, first off, uh, Stephen Jenkinson, it's a real pleasure to talk to you today. I really you know, appreciate you making time for me. And um, the first thing I'll, I'll say is, um, so just to provide a bit of context, I mean, I've been familiar with your work for a while, I've seen your documentary, and I've I've been moved and inspired by your work for a while because, frankly, I'm fascinated by death, and increasingly so the older I get, and how our culture treats death and how we treat death in different cultures. And in this podcast in general, I really try to make a point of not dealing with things that are in the news, uh, not dealing with current events. But I mean, I'm speaking to you today, the end of March 2020, And it seems a little insane, given your specialty and the state of the world, to not say something about what's happening. So first off, I'd just like to know, like, how are you? (laughs) I know you had a tour that was postponed, unfortunately. Um, What are you up to these days? How how are you doing? And, I mean, what's your general take on what's been happening lately with this pandemic? Uh, Well, first of all, yes. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to join you. Course. I appreciate course. it. I know you're far away and another part of the world. I've been in Bali myself several times and I'm here in the snow after uh, uh, composing a, a, a record in uh, Oaxaca in, well, January and February. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So we came out of sort of this monastic isolation of focusing on the record and so on uh, into the middle of this news. And I literally didn't know it was going on. Um. How am I doing? Well, thankfully, uh, we passed through four airports on the way to get here after the Canadian government said, uh, you better get home while you still can, Mm. which I took to be, uh, you know, as as clear as a as a uh, typically understated government can be. So, (laughs) yeah, so we uh, picked up and left a couple weeks earlier than we planned to. And and uh, we're in the, I think, 11th day of the uh, the quarantine, and everything seems to be fine, thank God, personally speaking, because I'm uh, 
I'm of the demographic that I'm basically the walking dead if it gets anywhere near me. There's no doubt of that. So, yeah, that's good. Um, yes, like like virtually everyone I can think of, uh, the plans that I had, the schemes, the uh, the certainties, the um, the schedule. My whole year was planned. Actually, I was I was going to be on tour basically. Uh, 10 to 11 months of this year, starting in April and ending at the end in early December. That's with Gregory uh, Hoskins. Yeah, touring with the band mainly. And uh, we're going to be in four continents and the tour was 70 cities. So uh, it was a big deal. And we're, we're having to, well, we're postponing it by degrees. Uh, so for the time being, we had to postpone the North American leg of things. We'll see how Europe is in you know months from now. Um, that's where we're supposed to be next uh, in the Middle East and Europe and and um, of course at some level. Uh, I mean, this is an enormous thing to wade in and just you know begin to to talk about. I guess I guess the first thing that hits me is this is entirely predictable. It's entirely anticipatable. And it was well within our ability to know that such a thing was uh, was not only possible, but that there was a kind of perfect storm imminence that's a direct consequence of the globalized economy and, and, and the ease with which we travel and, and all of those kinds of things. So, so nobody should be surprised. Uh, the fact that, it, that people, so many are undone by it suggests just how far away we are living day to day, at least in a North American context, from from the realities that make our cocoon as predictable as it's been up until now. Mm. <clears throat> That's the first thing. I guess the second one is it's very dismaying to anticipate the very likely possibility that we have an opportunity right now before us that's been thrust upon us to stop, not think about it, not consider our options, but stop. Since we've been stopped, the, the opportunity before us is nothing less than God-given. You know, the water's running clearly in the Venice lagoons. Yeah. Any questions, yeah. right? Any questions? I mean, this is what it took to get a glimpse of how things could be if we fundamentally change how we're living, period. That's exactly what it is. It's a lot of other things, too. You know, and I'm not making light of the people dying and their families and, and all the rest of it. It's an enormously big deal at every level. But we've been obliged arbitrarily and very suddenly to come to our senses and, and that's what this time at home should be. It should be a kind of monastic, contemplative coming to our senses and realizing um, what it's done to the world for us to have the life that we've had. And the fact is that our life is not our right. Our way of life is not our right. It's clear. And... What I was saying earlier, what that dismays me most is the like the the almost inevitable likelihood 
that on the other side of the emergency aspect of this thing, the, the grim attraction to business as usual and to getting on the other side and to being okay again and all of that and picking up where we left off and everything, um, the so-called elected officials are going to be mad for that kind of program. And the, the marketplace will be mad for it. And the only parts that's left is whether or not we, the great unwashed mass, are willing to, to take up our position again, you know, in the grim march towards um, what we're clearly on the road towards, you know, self-undoing of the most grotesque kind. And uh, it, it dismays me to consider the real possibility that virtually nothing will change. Of course, you're hearing all kinds of, you know, armchair prophetic pronouncements about everything's different. That's completely um, uh, an arbitrary and goofy declaration to make right now. You know the, the, the capacity of a consumer culture to absorb what would undo it, to turn the, the challenge into another aspect of consumer culture is unspeakably profound and pervasive. There's no reason to believe that it will come back, you know, in spades because the marketplace is a living thing and it will not just go away quietly. Right. So we have this opportunity and this moral obligation to the generations to come to be undone in our assumptions about what constitutes our rights. And uh, I mean, pray to all everything that's holy that we remain undone. Hmm. It's it's funny hearing you speak. I mean, I think there are some aspects of what you're saying that's you know could be read as um, I'm not sure if pessimistic's the right word, but I mean realistic, shall we say? Um, not, I think it's either one. It's it's um, you know prophecy is the act of reading the tea leaves at the bottom of the cup of the tea that you drink. That's what prophecy is. It's not fortune telling. Right. It's not, it's not future oriented. The, the obligation to be prophetic is the obligation to pay almost livid attention to the current regime, to everything that binds us and that holds us fast. I think that's what you're hearing from me is, you know, without declaring myself having any particular function, but just as a citizen, my moral obligation is to pay attention first and foremost and to to resist the seductions of pessimism because pessimism is no less seductive than a kind of goofball optimism is. They're, they're basically two sides of the same irresponsible coin. Mm. I know I interrupted you, but well, let me please turn it back over to you. What were we going to say? Oh, no, no, that's quite all right. And I, I just say I love that turn of phrase. What did you say? Livid attention? That, that's great. Um, I was just saying, I, I guess what I was, one thing that I've been thinking about during this, and you tell me if I'm totally, uh, what did you say, a goofy optimist. Um, but I was actually, I'm talking to you from Canada today. I'm Canadian and one who's a veteran of some really horrific, horribly cold Canadian winters. One thing I've always, I'm, I'm not a fan of winter in case you haven't guessed, but one thing I always really loved in Canada is in the early spring when we would emerge from our houses more, we'd meet on patios and have drinks with friends and there'd be a real coming together of bodies and 
physical touch and you'd see your friends more and it's like the whole city would be emerging from hibernation. I'm thinking particularly yeah. in Ottawa where the winter is just unreal. And the one thought mm-hmm. I had is, is that perhaps there'll be something akin to that maybe that could come out of this. In other words, you know, so much of our life is mediated by screens like you and I right now. But I mean, even when there's not a pandemic going on, you know, people texting each other. I used to live with some people who would text each other in the same room. They'd be literally sitting across from each other. You know what I mean? And I'm wondering if hopefully there might be something that comes out of this that's almost akin to the thawing of the Canadian winter when it's like we're getting out of our houses again. And it's like, oh, it's so nice to actually see our friends in person and have a beer in the patio and share a laugh and share hugs. And do you know what I mean? That's one thing that's been giving me a bit of hope. I, I think I do know what you mean. And I would temper that that vision. You can say goofy fun- optimism. That's all right. <laughs> no, no, no. No, as it goes, it's it's a... It's a compelling vision, right? But the rest of the vision is what people did in our part of the world before there was these screens, before there was, you know, um, central heating and air conditioning, before, before. In those days, people would meet up out on the, on the highway, on their way in somewhere. And what would they be doing? Among other things, and this is part of the celebration, is they would be doing a head count of who made it through the winter and who didn't. Mm. Now, that was a reality. I know that I have a farm here in the Ottawa Valley, so it's not far from where you're talking about. And I know there's undeclared grave sites on this farm of, you know, infants that didn't make it through their first winter and so on. And so on. all these things are tremendously undocumented, but, but they're there. Right. And, and we're in such a time and I don't mean literally the people who are dying of, uh, of the virus, but I mean, at a greater level, the willingness to count the casualties, the things that weren't going to make it through a storm like this, they have to be counted. And the willingness to 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 fess up to that and to, to bear witness to it is what underwrites your capacity to be grateful for being alive. Mm. You're not grateful for being alive because you think it's inevitable that you're going to live no matter what. Your real gratitude for being alive comes from where? From the the dawning realization as you come into your adulthood that it's not going to last. And you take your life for granted to the extent to which you start believing that there's, there's no reason to live your life in the presence of its end, that it's morbid, that it's um, unnecessarily grim, and and so on. Well, collectively, we're living a kind of four breaths away from the possibility of very quick demise within, you know, that's, that's the, what I'm hearing is when this thing gets a hold of you, it's a couple of days. Yeah. I mean, that's real, right? And, and of course, this is, you were going to die anyhow. And if it's not of this now, it's going to be something later. And when you, when you see somebody on the street in a time like this, that look should be in your eye too. That realization that we're still here should be in your eye. And with that camaraderie should come some kind of oath that you make to each other that you do your best not to forget how thin things became 
and what that asks of us now. Because it seems to me there's going to be two questions, as there always are from the younger generation to the old. And the first generation, excuse me, the first question is something like, when you were my age, did you know what was happening? And of course, these days, that's a very, very compelling question indeed. And no matter what your, what your, the particulars of your life are, the only answer you can give that's for real is something like, when I was your age, the information being what it was, anybody who wanted to know what was happening could have known. That's just the truth of it. But not everybody wanted to know. And so not everybody did. And we're in the circumstance we're in now because everybody didn't want to know what was happening. Hmm. And the second question that they have to ask is, so what did you do? And we're in the, in, in the process now of answering the question, what did we do when things became unexpectedly, blisteringly clear? Yeah, that's that's it's <laughs> extremely well put, and I, it's just it's it's such a privilege to be talking to you. I think particularly at this this moment in history. Um, but you used a word earlier that that I need to unpack for a moment because this has been something that's been bothering me for a long time. You mentioned uh, the word morbid which is often the word that people use whenever the subject of death enters any conversation. Oh, let's not talk about that. It's morbid, right? Um, right. I mean, I could spend an hour just talking to you about this, but, but I, I want to know, because there's something that I, I, I feel like I don't entirely understand, and maybe you can help me, help me understand it better. For me in my life, I find death to be the great motivating factor. There's nothing more motivating or inspiring or humbling or, I mean, just, you know, you, you mentioned the word celebration earlier as well. That's, that's kind of how I see, like, let's enjoy this. Let's really be present. Let's enjoy this celebration of life because it's not inevitable. It's not for sure. We don't know how, that, how long it's going to last. And why do you think more people don't see that and, and, and really don't appreciate that and, and, and use, you know, use death as a motivating factor to live a better life. I mean, I know this is a really basic question, but I, I don't entirely understand. I've read a lot about this and I just don't quite understand it. Is it simply the fact that our, our attempt to consider our own death is so difficult? And I don't mean emotionally fraught. I mean, it's literally difficult to imagine non-being. Um, Oh, I mean, what's your take on that? Why do so many people just really run away from it and don't see it as this, like the fact that, that we know we're going to die is an enormous gift that is not afforded to all species. Why don't we see it as a gift? I, I don't entirely understand. Well, the first thing is, it's not true that nobody gets it. Yes, right? and, of course. And the second thing to observe is different cultures in different times in different places had varying capacities to do the very thing that you're lamenting about right now. Certainly. And there are people alive on the planet, whole groups of them, whole cultures organized around an understanding that informs what you were just asking about and that informs their way of life and their ritual life and their, their, um, their social interactions and so on. So it's, it's just important First of all, not to globalize your anxiety 
about the inability of your peers to get hip. Right? And I'm okay. not saying that I'm so hip, but I, I appreciate the, the clarification. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Second thing then is, you know, it is not a given that your contemporaries or your peers know that they're going to die. Now, if I just say it like that, you know, some part of you goes, what? And doesn't even think about it. But I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't worth thinking about. So, so let's consider this. If, you know, many, many, hundreds, thousands of times I've stood up in front of rooms full of people in the last 15 or 20 years and made my living that way. And, and I would ask at various times, how many people in this room know they're going to die? Well, of course, because they're going to see me, they're not surprised I'm asking. And they're ready, they know what the, quote, right answer is, right? So most of their hands go up. So the next question is, so how can you tell that you know? Well, nobody wonders that because knowledge is supposed to be a self-evidently available thing. If you know something, you're not wondering if you know it. Number one and number two, it informs your daily life so rut routinely that it's, it's like having fingernails on the end of your fingers. It's just part of the deal. Okay. So he, this is a good thing to wonder about because I think this is the, the, the center of the question you asked. There was a time, you're too young to, to remember it, but you've probably heard about it. There was a time when virtually everyone proceeded as if there was enough oil. They knew there was enough oil. I mean, oil in the ground, oil. Now, probably you're thinking, well, wait a minute, that was never true. I didn't say it was true. I said, everybody knew it, okay? Not, and that's the distinction you have to be able to make. How could you tell that everybody knew there was enough oil in the ground? Answer is, by the kind of purchasing decisions they made and the life, the life architecture decisions that they made. It was all predicated on there being enough oil and relatively cheap oil besides. And that's not that long ago. Now, it was never true but it was something we knew. And the evidence that we knew it was in how we lived, that the knowledge of it was in evidence in our daily life. So take out the word oil and put in the word die and ask yourself whether or not the people that you know who text each other when they're in the same room know they're going to die. Not ask them, just observe their lives and see if you can find anywhere that their lives are informed by this knowledge that they're going to die. And I would hazard a guess that you wouldn't be able to find it. There's no sign whatsoever that this is a known thing. A feared thing? Yeah, I'll go along with you there. A, a dreaded thing? Yes. A thing that's um, fled from? Yes. But a thing that's known? There's no sign that the dominant culture of North America lives its daily life in the presence of the knowledge of its uh, impermanence. So without the knowledge and without a kind of culturally endorsed way of living the knowledge out loud and having it inform your days, there's no way you can ongoingly remember this thing. It takes some kind of 
calamity, personal or in our case, global, to remind you to be tapped on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, you know, this is not inevitable, right? There's two things that are not inevitable. The first one is it's not inevitable that you're going to live indefinitely. And two, it's not inevitable that you're going to remember that your life is not inevitable. So it's, it becomes mysteriously confounding that the most ordinary aspect of our lives, its ending, is the most elusive companion for us, right? Okay, so if it's not a given that it will be with us no matter what, then you realize what is necessary then is work, is uh, that we have to labor to come to this understanding and to keep it alive in our midst. Just like it's no different from loving somebody. You may claim you love somebody. Uh, you may identify a cluster of feelings. But if we observe your daily comings and goings, actually how you, how you craft your life, it may not be so self-evident, this love that you claim to have. And then you realize oftentimes you say, I love you as a surrogate for doing the loving. And you realize on your better days what enormous work it takes to, to be loving to the person you claim to love. It's hard. It's hard to be a human being. It's hard to be conscious. If it was easy, there'd be no such thing as philosophy, right? There'd be no such thing as religion. There'd be no such thing as... Um, as a God-based anything, because everything would be based that way. But it's clear, well, the last thing I'll say to you is this, I mean about this subject. We have, we have the word human, and then mysteriously in English we add an E on the end of it, for not to make another word. And if you don't think about it much, you think human and humane are synonyms. They're the same thing. Really? Why do we have one that's got an E and one that doesn't? I'm going to suggest a reason why to you. We have this word human that designates by default, since we're not anything else, that's what we seem to be, you and I and everybody who looks like us. On the other hand, while our, us being human might seem to be an inevitable consequence of our DNA assortment, our our way of living, our behavior, is not always in keeping, it would seem, with being human. So then it, it behooves us to realize that it's in the capacity of human beings to act inhumanly, you see, which is a tragic realization. And if that's true, then we've designated the word humane to suggest those times when we're on kind of our best behavior. And of course, a time like unfolding now, when things become scarce, when people start fighting about, you know, not, not the goofball situation of toilet paper on the shelves, but, but for real, we're going to find out the difference between human and humane very quickly. So you mentioned um, other cultures and the way that they handle death. It's very different than the way we, m many people do it in Canada and America and Europe. 
Um, one thing that comes to mind, I've spent a lot of time in India, and uh, they handle death very, very differently in India, as you probably know. Yeah. I'm curious, I mean, from your perspective, have you witnessed any other cultures or traditions and you think that they, I won't say they get it right, because that, that seems trite, but, you know, they they handle it in a way that really inspires you and you think that's that's well done, for lack of a better term, just the way that, that they handle death in the culture in general. Mm-hmm. You might have guessed that I'm I'm a guy that pays attention to language quite quite vividly. And so I'm going to suggest to you that your characterization of handling death is a particularly North American uh, dilemma-ridden phrasing. Death is not something you handle, okay? The, the cultures you're asking me about are probably similar in the following way. They don't handle death at all. On the other hand, they are handled by death, which is to say that their understanding would be that death is much more vast than anything they could think about it or any containment strategy or coping strategy that they might craft to, quote, get through it. I don't think any of those conceptions would occur to the places you're asking me about. One of the things that might unite them well, do you know an author named Peter Matheson? Have you heard his name? That name rings a bell. Yeah, he wrote a book about Snow Leopard. I, I, don't, I forget the name, the title now. But he wrote another book about um, headhunters in Borneo. He actually traveled with these crazy guys in the 60s, I think it was. And, and, he, and he related the following story. He's sitting on a hillside with an old man. And they're still headhunting in these days. And they're looking across a valley. And there's a hill great a great distance away but still very discernible and their neighboring tribe who are their enemies for the moment are living on that hilltop not that far away so matheson asked the old man he said um, who are the who are they to you he said uh, the old man said oh they're our enemies he said yeah and he said and it's been this way for a long time long time the old man said and then he said to him um, so they're only your enemies? He said, no, more importantly, they're our kin. He said, how, but you're fighting and killing each other all the time. How can they be your kin? Oh, the old man said, they die the same kind of death that we do. That was the basis of their kinship. And though you might not you know, favor or approve of their ways of relating to each other, which were obviously fraught with all kinds of things, but this observation is, is like that's an old world observation. The people's kinship is emphatically there in their mutual recognition of what it means to die. That establishes a kind of like-mindedness, if you will, or some kind of capacity to inhabit the same world and and to openly acknowledge the humanity of the other person rooted in the mutually held understanding of what dying means to both of them. It's really astounding observation that the old man made. And if you live in a culture, as I do, where nobody dies, you know, and you pay attention to language and almost nobody's going to say that about themselves, I'm dying, even when they are, nobody says I'm going to die. 
except in that small b casual Buddhist sense of the term, like, oh, we're all dying all the time, which is demonstrably bullshit, may I say. I mean, it's, this is a lame ass thing to say. And here's why. I worked in the death trade for I don't know how long it was, not that long. But I presided over hundreds of people dying. And I'm here to tell you with no exaggeration, there's a reality called you're dying. And it begins when we always miss the beginning, but it begins somewhere. It doesn't begin when you're conceived. It doesn't begin when you're born or when you draw breath for the first time. It begins when things start heading south. So if you think about it for a second, this 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 irresponsible declaration that people will make to me in interviews all the time that we're all dying all the time. It means that a terminal diagnosis is irrelevant, right? All it does is confirm the obvious. But I'm here to tell you that something is different when you're dying than when you're not. And it's just not a matter of consciousness. It's, it has to do with where in the arc of your life you are. It's a reality that's existential and ontological, as well as metabolic and physical. And, and, if it has a clear beginning, and it does, I, as I said, we miss it, but it's there, then it's possible to say that every time before that time, not only are you not dying, but you could be living in anticipation of this thing. And that anticipation could inform your days, as I was talking about earlier. That doesn't mean that you're dying by thinking about your death. That means that you're, along with the Dalai Lama, who years ago declared himself to be a simple monk preparing for his death, he said about himself. And um, we could do worse than preparing for our death because one of the things it does is it gives you the capacity to be immensely grateful and immensely present at the same time. Minus the understanding of your death, your capacity to be alive and to inhabit your life is iffy. So do I think there's places that have pulled it off? You know, I haven't been all over the world and I'm obviously not going to be and probably going to travel a lot less from here on in. Um, if there are places that are doing it better than us, I don't want to go. And the reason I don't want to go is they're doing fine without us eco-touristing their death practices. They don't need anybody who looks like me showing up with our poverties and our, you know, insistence to be rescued by their older traditions, etc., and all of that. And so it seems to me our obligation is to inhabit deeply uh, our poverties on this matter and not run to the hills for the latest incarnation of our little brown guy syndrome that we had, that so many of us have now, where we will turn to anyone and any tradition that doesn't look like us in order to get some kind of spiritual charge. And you can, I don't know if you ever thought of this, but imagine what the consequence must be for the legions of ancestral dead of generic North Americans who are seeking somebody else's tradition, anybody else's tradition but their own and, and where they come from. What might be the consequence for those dead who are abandoned yet again 
by the likes of us in, so that we can get some kind of disworldly, you know, uh, transfusion of spiritual uh, reality. Yeah. So you can hear I'm saying, yeah, of course there are places, but I'm deliberately not naming any of them or the people that come from them or any particular practices that they're lucky enough to hold on to despite our insistence on visiting them. Hmm. Well, that's, that's fair enough, needless to say. Um, have you read much Stoic philosophy, Seneca and, and uh, Marcus Aurelius meditations, any of those guys? No. So in Stoic philosophy, it's, it's death is omnipresent. Like they, these philosophers bring up, you know, you should consider your own death. Death is at the forefront of a lot of Stoic philosophy. And, and I guess I'm, I'm curious to the extent, speaking personally, especially as you age, you mentioned that you're in the, the sort of danger age bracket for this, uh, this virus going around, unfortunately. I mean, what, how, to what extent do you consider your own death or how do you think about your own death as you get older or do you, you know, is it changing as you get older? I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I try to, my, you know, my best to consider my own death uh, in, in the ways that I can in, insofar as I'm, as I'm capable. But what role does it play in your life? Is it present with you every day? Is it something you think about? Do you meditate on it? Like what role does your own death play in your life? Um, okay, there's an idea, and as soon as I identify it, you'll recognize it. It goes something like this. If you do that, you're going to have a better day. If you keep your death close, you're, you're inherently going to be a more cogent and capable and attractive human being. So the dilemma with that assumption is, first of all, if you're doing it in a culture that doesn't practice anything like that kind of familiarity, well, you're going to be an outlier at best. And at worst, you're going to draw all kinds of enmity and fire and attention of the unwanted kind and so on. So the context in which you try to live out this death awareness goes a long way towards determining what the consequences of doing so are. So it's really important that we not traffic in the idea that if you do this, you're going to achieve some kind of equilibrium, you know, or, or some kind of sort of uh, finer horizon uh, that you can live up against. That's the first thing. Second thing is, shit's hard, man. I mean, there's a reason, right? There's a reason the Stoics were Stoics, right? And, <laughs> it's very and hard. They just didn't say, Hey, you know, <laughs> do the best you can. I mean, they wor they worked double time at trying to figure out how to keep such a thing close. Yes. Well, people yeah. people only exercise that kind of work in direct proportion to how elusive it is. Mm. Right? Okay. So why would the awareness of the givenness of the end of our lives be such an elusive thing during the course of our lives when in a real sense that's exactly where our life is headed towards well the answer is that depending on where you were born there's either grace in the presence of limit or there's grievance in the presence of limit mm. 
I was born in a time and place that doesn't believe in limits, that believes in defying limits instead. And of course, the tragic consequences of doing so are beginning to appear now. And there's no doubt whatsoever that this virus that's looming and lurking as you and I speak today is it has come among us as a direct consequence of our refusal to obey the limits that the wild is trying to reinstate. I mean, that's literally what happened, mm. right? If, if you just think China or that city in China or that wet market in that city in China and you stop there and you say, that's where it came from. You think you solved the thing. So all you're going to do is what? What are you going to do preventatively speaking? You're going to shut down all those kinds of markets. But wait a minute. What was in the market? I don't know if you're alert to this, but what was in these markets was in close proximity, you had domesticated animals that were a food source and wild animals that were a food source. And they were often in cages, one on top of the other like this. So it's very clear that what happened was that a, some kind of virus from the wild crossed the chasm from wild animal to domesticated animal and subsequently to the handlers of domesticated animals and the vendors and ultimately the consumers of them as meat. That's what happened. So if you take the story and you simply allow yourself to be informed at the mythic level by what it means, the poetic level, it means that we never should have brought the domestic and the wilderness into that kind of proximity. And we're not living within any kind of limit that's, forget sustainable, that's even morally upholdable. I know that's not a word, but so, so that being the case, I mean, you think, dude, just answer my question about how you live with your dying every day. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. No. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm answering. You see, I'm answering it because, you know, when I had to decide to leave Oaxaca and, and listen to the government and risk the airports and so on, I knew already that they're, you know, between age and predisposing, you know, uh, bronchial problems and so on. If that thing got anywhere close to me, I wouldn't last 48 hours. Mm. That's true. And and um, I had to think about it again, you know, <laughs> where if I'm going to if I'm going to die imminently, where should I do it? And uh, so I'll tell you a little story from Bali. Years ago, I was teaching there. And they had me on the main street of Ubud in some big theater. You probably know the place. I can't remember it anymore. But it was a big theater, like a, a film. They would show screenings and there was tiered seating, I remember, in a balcony and so on. So... They showed the Grief Walker film and, and there's questions and answers everywhere. And, you know, maybe half the audience was expats from Australia and, and New Zealand. And so I took a chance at the end. This is the way I summed up the evening. I said, now, you probably claim that you love this place, right? You do love it. You've decided to make a home here. And they all said, yes, yes. And you've done pretty well from having decided, haven't you? Yes, yes. Okay. But I can see from here that most of you will be dead soon. I don't know if that's occurred to you lately, but it's occurred to you now. You're going to be dead soon. So if you really love this place, don't die here. The last thing Bali needs is another dead Australian. So you have to go home to die, you see. Mm. That's what we have to do. 
And they went bananas at me. I mean, actively, aggressively, wow. and very un-New Agely, they went bananas at me. Very oh, man, hostile. Those, those New Age people will turn on you, my friend. <laughs> they will. Yes, I, I'm, well, I'm well aware, yeah. So I only tell that story, not at the expense of Australians, of course not, but only to say that clearly they were not living with their deaths present every day. Mm. So to be reminded was very unwelcome, right? In my case, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds of dead people right here. They're right here. And though I can't see them, you know, but every, every time I turn, they remain on the periphery. And they included me in their dying. I don't say they had much of a choice, and they didn't mean to, but they did. And there was an enormous privilege that came with that and an enormous obligation that came with it. And the obligation was don't blink you know, make sense of it later. But for now, for now, stay in the saddle and um, stay as alert as you can. The way I characterized it was my obligation was to be a faithful witness uh, to the burdensome privilege of what I was seeing. And my willingness to do that is probably what drew me to your attention and caused you to think that maybe it would be a good idea for us to talk. I'm still doing it, you see. So I don't need a virus to remind me because I have, I have 10 tons of gravitas around me all the time as a consequence of that work and other things besides. And I mean, I can forget with the best of them. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing guaranteed. But if enough people ask me to appear on their interviews, uh, it's harder and harder for me to set this stuff aside. So strangely enough, I welcome the opportunity to wonder about these things aloud because it reinstates my, my kinship with goneness, you see. When I think about it, I'm not reassured about it. I don't feel a master of it in any way. When I think about my death, I'm it's saddening, I have to say, because I'm finding being alive to be very habit forming and very compelling. And, um, you know, getting older and getting slightly less firm in your physique and so on than once was the case doesn't loosen life's attraction, believe it or not. It really doesn't. It changes what you're attracted to. But it doesn't make life less compelling because you, you know, you, you're feeling less capable than you once did. Because one of the things you begin to realize is look what you did with the capacity that you once had. You frittered it. You wasted it away. You didn't take it seriously. You didn't take it as a gift. You took it for granted and all the rest. So now in the time that I have left, I could be defeated by that or by its, its kind of um, departing from me by degree. I could be defeated by it. Or I could say, man, it's, I'm coming to my senses. <laughs> you know, and it's not too late to find the grace and the gratitude in there too. So I don't mean to make it sound like a, you know, a good news story all around because it's hard work. 
and I'm with your Stoics 100%, if they were trying to work it out every day, one of the things they were probably doing is trying to find a language in which the realities of dying could be could be revived simply by the way you spoke about them or the way you spoke in general, you know, that you, that you checked your inclination to traffic in inevitabilities and, and eventually that's just gone altogether and you can't do it. And then when you hear other people doing it, you gently or otherwise suggest to them that none of these things are inevitable that they're counting on. So the, all these things help, you know, it seems to me that what all the contemplative people have done, take meditation as a good example. You're, you're surrounded by meditators where you're sitting right now, I'm quite sure. I am. Yeah. And you think about what they've done. The best of them, they took something that the human body has to do anyway, breathe. And they devoted enormous amounts of attention to this necessity. And they brought a almost monastic and devotional focus to it. And they employed something that you were going to, something really mundane and ordinary. And, and found God that way. Well, if this is, we can do this with breath, and we certainly can. We can do it with speech too. And I suppose in my way, for the last 15 or 20 years, that's what I've tried to do. Take the ordinariness of speech and make it prayerful. You, uh, we don't have a lot of time left, and I want to be cognizant of your time. But I, one, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you before I let you go is, I guess you know you, you use this phrase a lot in interviews, wondering aloud. You know, wondering about these things aloud. What are you spending most of your days wondering about? these days in terms like what is driving you what, what are the questions that are really driving you at this particular stage in your life i know i, I didn't want to finish the interview before i mentioned that you have a great book out that i believe it came out last year called come of age a case for elderhood in a time of trouble would you say making that case for elderhood is that the main driving force in your work right now or what are you what are you wondering about lately no it's it's peculiar it's probably like a musician uh you know you make a record and then the record is historical almost immediately. That is, it's a testimony to what you were concerned about. And then maybe you tour with the record and you, you do your best to make it sound like it's very current for you. But in actual fact, the record was conceived six or eight or ten months ago. And, of course, life has moved on. And so it's the same with, you know, I did Die Wise and then I did Come of Age and Am I still thinking about elderhood? Well, it's, I wouldn't say it's, I'm not thinking about elderhood, I'm practicing it. So I, it doesn't need to be an object of continued contemplation or advocacy as a, as a discrete subject, you know. You could, say, you could say it this way. I never use the word spiritual as an, as an adjective. But if you forced me to do it, I'd say we can make a distinction that goes like this. You could talk about spiritual things, or you could talk about everything spiritually. My preference is the second one. I don't think that we need to designate certain preoccupations as elevated and others as not. Uh, in the case of elderhood, yeah, I made a pretty good case in that book for elderhood, and I can tell you 
that most of my peers have rejected it. Most of my peers feel impugned by that book and properly so, because the book does impugn people of my age. Not completely. That's not all it does, but it's certainly there. And they've picked up that tone of it. And <laughs> of course, I didn't write the book for people my age. I wrote the book for people your age or for a generation younger than you. I bear them in mind. So if I'm preoccupied with anything now, it's to find a way to translate what I've been lucky enough and burdened enough and troubled enough to see into something that amounts to this. The time's coming. I don't pretend to know what it's going to look like uh, or when it's going to take place. But there will, it's clear that the current regime is moving towards some kind of undoing. And it's doing so unconsciously and unintentionally for the most part. So it's being dragged there by its own efforts, strangely enough. So some kind of extraordinary cluster of endings is on the horizon. And I don't know if it's a, you know, I'm not talking about global catastrophes of uh, ecological kind, but maybe I am, I don't know. But let's imagine that handfuls here and there of people make it through to the other side of that. And let's imagine that their principal preoccupation won't really be survival. Let's imagine their principal preoccupation is them coping with trying to figure out who we are to them. Are we their ancestors? And if we are, should they be claiming us as ancestors or should they be defending themselves against us and our example? Because after all, our refusal to live otherwise put them in harm's way and deliver to them the world that they're trying to find some way to inhabit. That's a realistic vision today. I'm living my life in the presence of that time coming. So I'm either going to give those people in the near future one more thing to regret and to be ashamed by or I could leave in the air some idea that when it became apparent the likelihoods of what was coming, that a few people lived as if these people would be someday. That's it. That's what I'm thinking about one way or another all the time. It's not to say I'm always thinking about the future, but I'm living in its presence now. And I'm conducting myself as if all of this will in some way or other come to pass. And the worst thing that could happen is that I'm wrong. That would be the best thing that would happen. But I don't think I am. I think that's, that's the deal now. So I have a band and we're touring all over the world with this in mind and this and you know I don't call the band we don't have a name for the band but we have a name for the event it's called nights of grief and mystery 
And we've gone to, I don't know, I can't tell you how many gigs over the last four or five years. And how could I, you know, go to Istanbul and Stockholm and London and, and all over the U.S. and Canada and, and Mexico? And how could it be to do this in a language that maybe not everybody sitting there understands? And yet they're very compelled by the idea that you could actually celebrate life by making peace with grief and mystery instead of trying to get rid of it. So, so I suppose if anything endures longer than 10 or 15 minutes after I do, that's what I would hope is that people could see that not everybody went to Mars, you know, not everybody, uh, took the immortality pill that's and not everybody went quietly or went screaming into the night, you know, that some people took, take a, a dead reckoning of what was going on and decided to try to find a way to be a human being, not, not to live and to continue and to endure, but so that the idea of humanity could be, um, could count again, could be something to be rediscovered and believed in and practiced. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Well, Stephen Jenkinson, you continue to give me uh, just a hell of a lot to think about. And uh, I really want to thank you for, for making time for me today. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. So thank you very much, sir. And please keep doing what you're doing. Okay, I will if you will. That's, that's a deal. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to take a little walk Through them fields I'm going to carry me gently For my heart to heal I'm going to find me a demon In a dark, dark wood can't come with me I wish you could well, I was born yeah. I was raised Yes, I was loved And I was praised when I got scared, oh, my mama did arm me with a cross and a prayer man, to keep harm from me while I take my little walk through them fields. Gonna carry me gently for my heart to heal. Yeah. I'm gonna find me a demon in the dark, dark wood. You can't come with me, I wish you could. Well, the prayer brought comfort for a while 
Shepherd style The cross I gave To my girlfriend I've been thinking about you Catherine from Welland While I take my little walk Through them fields to heal I'm gonna find me a demon in a dark dark wood you can't come with me I wish you could I wish I wish I wish I sitting in my house. We just met and Gregory left uh, a couple of CDs and I prayed. I prayed to all the gods of music. It, was, it wasn't one of those real bad basement self-produced things that your mother would like but not many other people. And I was trying to figure out how I would say, yes, yeah, pretty good really. And all of that, I didn't have much, much to think about because it came, the strings came swirling up. And that's the very first thing I heard. And I realized that this was, a, this was a kind of overture to everything I'd ever done. Though I'd never met him and never heard it. It was an overture to all of my understanding about how one properly and devoutly and on bended knee 
and bended brow approaches that little altar of stones which is the ending of their days. And I realized the whole thing is a, is a, is a kind of blessed and windswept choreography. Just that first verse. And so I want to linger over it because I may never get to do it again. Well, I suppose I'm going to take a little walk. And I, just, I, I love the smallness of the scale. I'm, just, uh, I'm going to take a walk. And where am I going? Through the terror-filled streets of the fact that I don't get to do this a thousand more times. No, he says, no, it's a little field. And as a farmer, that means a lot to me, I must tell you. A field is like everything I could never have thought of all in one place. I take a little walk through this field at the ending of my days. And what does one do when one gets there? Of all the things he proposes to carry him gently. I'm gonna carry me gently, why? Because it's already been so hard. That's not why, that's not why. Because there are times when the healing of the heart doesn't come from inactivity. It comes from being on the receiving end of some other kind of grace that you'd never really thought about. I'm going to carry me gently so my heart can heal, which wouldn't be a bad way to die at all. And of all the things that could come next, when I heard this one, he says, <clears throat> I'm going to find me a demon. And where else do they live? In a dark, dark wood. Well, don't forget where you've been. What's a field and a dark wood? And the answer is where one ends, the other begins. That's where you are. That's where you are. It's not some other place entirely. They somehow belong together. At my farm, you find them cheek by jowl. That's where they are. But of all the things to seek at the ending of your days, but a demon, what is this demon thing? What might the difference between a demon and an angel, the one you'd think you'd normally seek at a time like that in your days? What, what's the difference really? That angel that you seek out on occasion, that's the one who's carrying what you have in mind for yourself, something that you welcome. The only difference from the angel is the demon is carrying that mandatory urgency of life that you don't quite welcome and you don't quite seek, and you don't feel quite ready for. And so because of all that unwelcomeness, the demon has the PR that it currently has. Tonight we can suspend that old understanding of that terrible difference between them and imagine that one of the ways that we have the deep presence in our life is that both sides of that story appear, and the demon and the angel both, which is why I love that lyric. I'm going to find me a demon in a dark, dark wood when it's my time to die. If that weren't love letter enough for being alive, he writes a little love letter to everybody who's hearing the song. It's this strange kind of sorrow-packed, mysterious proposition that you are allowed at the end of your days to wish somebody could come with you. Completely, in fact, let's go further and say it's mandatory that you don't want to walk that by yourself. And why should you? And maybe you shouldn't have to, but you probably will. And both of those things can be true at the same time, and they don't cancel each other out. And you don't have to choose between them. 
you can wish somebody could come with you, and you can know the rest of the story, which is that they can't. You can't come with me, sis. Still, I wish you could. And if that ain't a love song, then I've never heard one. But having heard that one, I believe I've heard them all.